0: Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode 12 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. Today, we're going to talk about some of the risks of mortgage investing. But before we go any further, let's address a question from one of our listeners. This week, it's from Jeff. Remember, you can submit a question at alexisasadinet slash podcast. So, Jeff wanted to know whether I've ever foreclosed on a property and what the experience was like. To clarify for everyone, foreclosing is the act of taking a borrower to court in order to force the sale of their real estate. It's a way for a lender to recover a mortgage-secured debt. Jeff, I don't have too much to share on this one. Not only have I never foreclosed on a property, but nobody has ever even missed a payment on one of my mortgage loans. There was one time a couple of years ago where the borrower's check bounced, but he corrected it almost immediately. That's about as bad as I've experienced from mortgages. One of the advantages of being a smaller lender is that you can have plenty of time to research every deal to your satisfaction. You'll remember from an earlier podcast that large real estate investment trusts often overpay for their properties because they're in such a hurry to move their cash. The same can apply to big mortgage funds and banks, who might be financing tens of thousands of deals each year. That sort of volume can leave a lot of room for error. But in my case, I'm able to take my time. I also make sure that each deal is vetted by a good lawyer. It's probably not possible to maintain a pristine track record forever, but so far so good. Also, as a side note, for me, foreclosure is the last thing I want to do. I'd much rather avoid the whole process. But there are some lenders that intentionally trip up their borrowers so that they can begin foreclosure proceedings. Their whole model is based around it. Okay, so before we jump into the meat of today's episode, let's recap our prior discussions. We now know that a mortgage is a legal instrument that's used to attach a debt to real estate. It's not a loan in and of itself. We also know that one of the most important concepts to understand is the loan to value ratio, or LTV. It expresses the value of a property when compared to how much debt it has. For instance, if there's a house worth $500,000 with registered debts of $450,000, then the LTV would be 90%. That means that 90% of the house is encumbered by debts. If it was sold, then the seller could only realize 10% of the proceeds. As well, we discussed how mortgage loans can be investments. We established that lenders can earn passive income by charging interest. They can also bolster their profits by charging fees, like late penalties and origination fees. Lenders will usually require the borrower to reimburse it for all expenses that it incurs in connection with a loan, like legal costs. In many cases... Fees and reimbursements are deducted from the funds advanced. While mortgage loans can be enticing income-producing assets, they can also come with risk. Like last week, today we'll examine some of the main ones from a ground-level perspective. So for the next 10-15 minutes, let's assume that you're a private lender who's financing a small real estate deal. The entrepreneur borrowed money from you to renovate a property and later flip it for a profit. You've secured the loan with a mortgage on the house. So what kinds of hazards are you looking at? Even if you're not interested in being a lender yourself, say you'd rather invest through a fund, this will still be good for you to know. After all, these are the mechanics that underpin mortgage-based securities. I'll cover how to defend against these risks in a later episode. So the first and most basic risk of mortgage loans is default. What happens if the entrepreneur stops making his payments? Maybe the real estate deal failed, or he encountered other troubles in his business. Regardless, several months go by and the entrepreneur hasn't paid you. So what does this all look like? Obviously this is not a desired position to be in. The loan has gone from an income producing asset to a non-performing one. Most lenders will make several attempts to encourage the borrower to resume payments. Depending on your relationship, it could be anything from phone calls, emails and text messages, to sending legal letters and hiring collections agencies. But, after exhausting all other avenues, your final option will be to take legal action. This will mean going to court and filing a lawsuit. It can become pretty costly if you have to hire a lawyer. In the best case scenario, the threat of losing the property will cause the borrower to resume making payments. He might also seek another source of financing in order to pay you out. All the while, the interest clock keeps ticking, and he'll probably have incurred late fees and will reimburse your expenses. It'd be a nuisance, but a profitable one, and you'd ultimately avoid the foreclosure process. If you do have to foreclose on the property, the best case is that the court orders a quick sale at market value. After it's sold you'd get your principal back along with interest, fees, and reimbursements of your legal costs. However, lenders often run into trouble when the value of the property isn't enough to pay them back. Maybe they were too aggressive with their LTV or the price of the real estate fell dramatically after making the loan. But this is where the risk of default really starts to materialize. If that was the case with your loan you might only recover $25,000 from the borrower's property. You then have to collect the rest from his other assets, which is usually harder without real estate. For example, you may have to gain permission from the court to garnish his income or to seize his bank accounts. None of this is particularly difficult, but you can see how mortgage loans can quickly become the opposite of a passive investment. As well, some will try to avoid paying by hiding their money. That's why it's useful to work with a lawyer who's experienced in asset protection and recovery strategies. Your ability to recover the debt will ultimately depend on the borrower's wealth. It might take years to recoup what you're owed if he doesn't have much to his name. If he declares bankruptcy, then you may not be able to recover anything else. You'd be out $5,000 of principal, plus outstanding interest, plus whatever legal fees you incurred. That's among the worst case scenarios. Therefore it's really important to make sure that the LTV will be enough to protect your capital. A second risk with mortgage loans can occur before the deal even takes place. For example, let's say the borrower asks you for $30,000 and you agree to various terms and conditions. You then hire a lawyer to draft the loan and mortgage documents. However, shortly thereafter, your lawyer runs a title search and discovers two existing liens on the property. You then lose confidence in the investment and decide to back out. Not only would you be in third position and are uncomfortable with the risk, but you also feel misled by the entrepreneur. You don't want to do business with someone like that. A month later, your lawyer sends you an invoice for her time. It's not her problem that the deal didn't go through. She performed a service, and you need to pay for it. As such, you're out $1,000, and there's nobody there to reimburse you. Now, the good news is that there are basic tools that you can use to manage these two risks. They're pretty standard in the business. Like I said earlier, I'll discuss more about that in a later episode. However, one risk that's difficult for retail investors to manage is mortgage loan's lack of liquidity. Unlike a publicly traded REIT for example, you can't just click sell and get your money back. You're stuck with the investment until you're repaid. At first glance, it may seem odd to want liquidity if you've got an asset that's doing really well, but for example if there's an emergency and you need cash right away, a mortgage loan would probably not be of much help. Banks, investment funds and professional lenders have the connections and resources to make this problem go away. They can often sell their loans to other investors. For example, if you needed cash immediately, you might sell your $30,000 promissory note to me for $30,000. As such, you'd get your money back and I would now own the loan. But this is usually not a realistic option for most people. First, they may not have anyone to sell the loan to. This will be exacerbated if the loan is risky or if it's in default. I may be willing to buy your loan while it's performing, but I probably wouldn't after the borrower stopped paying, unless you drop the price. Second, there are laws that govern how and to whom you can sell mortgage loans. You'll either need a lawyer or knowledge of securities laws to do so compliantly. So those in my view are the top three risks of mortgage loans. Default risk, origination risk, and liquidity risk but there can be all sorts of other issues, including those revolving around insurance, tax, jurisdictional, and environmental laws. That's why it's highly recommended to work with a lawyer who can guide you. I once almost funded a deal in Saskatchewan until my lawyer told me that I needed to get a license to lend there. If he didn't tell me that, I could have incurred a hefty fine. Now, although we're discussing the risks of individual mortgages, I think it's appropriate to look at what can happen when millions of them go into default. This occurred in the early 2000s and caused what's now called the Great Recession. It was the most disastrous economic calamity in 70 years. Because of it, in 2008, 2.6 million Americans lost their jobs. The next year, 1.4 million Americans filed for bankruptcy. Almost 4 million homes were foreclosed on in the US. The contagion also spread internationally. For example, Canada shed 400,000 jobs by 2009. Almost 3 million Britons were unemployed. Trillions of dollars evaporated from around the world, and a generation of young adults were unemployed or underemployed for a decade. Still today, the Greek, Portuguese and Italian economies haven't fully recovered. And all of this stemmed from mortgage loans. So what happened? Well, before we get into that, let me take a moment to shamelessly promote a business that I serve as CEO to. This episode is sponsored by Pacific Income. If you're a real estate investor or a small business owner and need financing to expand your venture, we can be the right partner for you. We lend as much as $250,000 to American and Canadian entrepreneurs. Pacific Income will consider deals that don't always fit inside the box that banks require. We know that they're missing out on all sorts of great opportunities, so that's where we come in. Please check us out at PACIncome.com. That's P-A-C-Income.com. Alright, what a riveting commercial. So let's get back to it. The Great Recession of 2008 and 2009 originated from bad lending practices. For years, American bankers effectively gave mortgage loans to anyone who applied for one. A common recipient were ninjas, but unfortunately not the cool type. Ninjas, an abbreviation for a person with no income, no job, and no assets. Financing given to ninjas and to other people who couldn't afford to repay their debts was called a subprime loan. Bankers assumed that real estate prices would rise continually, so the loans would be protected by the equity in their homes. Therefore, there was no reason to restrict who could get a mortgage. You could walk into a bank with no cash, no credit, no job, and still get a loan. After making the loans, banks would then sell them to other investors. As such, they passed the risk on to their clients. This was usually done through products called collateralized debt obligations, or CDOs. Between 2003 and 2007, the size of CDOs issued went from $86 billion to $481 billion. Further, large insurance companies offered creditor protection policies on them. Credit rating agencies gave them full marks, making these loans appear like solid bets. But by 2007, borrowers started to default. They obviously couldn't afford to make their loan payments and the chickens came home to roost. The number of defaults rapidly escalated by 2008, causing widespread foreclosures. Millions of people lost their homes and were thrown into bankruptcy. The CDOs therefore failed, wiping out investors. And as these investment products collapsed, it dragged down insurance companies who couldn't afford to insure such vast sums of losses. One by one, banks and insurance companies across America crumbled or suffered major losses. They stopped lending and credit dried up, killing people's ability to make purchases. By mid-2008, one of the largest and oldest investment banks in the world, called Bear Stearns, had collapsed. After almost 100 years in business, it imploded in a matter of months because of its exposure to CDOs. As well, the U.S. government had bailed out American insurance group, AIG, with a $180 billion injection. As people and businesses across the U.S. imploded financially, they spent less money, had trouble borrowing, and sold off their investments. This poured fuel onto the fire, dooming more companies and sending the stock market on a freefall. As the world's largest economy burned down, practically every country on the planet followed suit. A recovery didn't begin until mid-2009. U.S. President Barack Obama's administration dumped exorbitant sums of capital into the economy. It bailed out financial institutions and automakers from collapse. While many saw that as rescuing the same firms that caused the recession, the unfortunate fact is that they were just too big to fail. Banks, insurance firms, and car companies were the cornerstone of the economy. If they went down, tens of millions of people and businesses would have been ruined. It would have been the end of the modern economy. On October of 2008, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, the head of the International Monetary Fund, stated that intensifying solvency concerns about a number of the largest U.S.-based and European financial institutions have pushed the global financial system to the brink of systemic meltdown. President Obama saved the U.S., and probably the world... From a second Great Depression. In my opinion, it was by far his greatest achievement. By 2014, the economy was producing record levels of growth, which continued into the Trump presidency. However, by doing so, trillions of dollars of debt were added to America's balance sheet. Eventually, somebody is going to have to pay that back. People often criticize Obama's presidency because of the debt incurred under him. But they fail to recognize three things. First, much of that debt was actually incurred by the George W. Bush administration, the result of major tax cuts and going to war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Second, the recession started while Bush was still in power. It was inherited by Obama, who was left to deal with it. Obama didn't take office until 2009. And third, without Obama spending the way that he did, we may not have had an economy at all. People often forget how bad things were in 2008, especially now that we're 10 years removed. But the world was on the brink of going back to the 1930s depression. Aside from poverty and malaise, the widespread economic ruin of the 1930s caused the rise of Hitler and the Second World War. People can, and I certainly do, take issue with a lot of Obama's policies but no person who is informed on the subject can take away from his economic accomplishments. Some people say that he should have let the economy burn down so that a new one could form, but that's an argument fit for the movies, not reality. I bring up the Great Recession because I want you to grasp how intrinsic mortgage lending is to the economy. It underpins real estate, which is most people's single most valuable asset. When it crumbles, the economy can also go down with it. I also want to dispel the myth that mortgage lending is risky because of what happened in 2008. The financial crisis stemmed from systemic issues, like lax regulations, bad banking practices, and unscrupulous credit rating methods. People also shouldn't have been borrowing money when they couldn't afford to pay it back. It was a perfect storm for an asset that is literally tied to people's households. But it would be illogical to avoid mortgages altogether because of the Great Recession. That would be similar to refusing to drink wine because alcohol can cause death. There's a difference between having a glass or two with dinner and downing a bottle of Jack Daniels before driving a car on the highway. Like all investments, mortgage lending should be done carefully. So that's it for today. Next week, we're going to discuss how lenders can manage the risks that we talked about in this episode. Until then, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast or to tell a friend about it. I appreciate you spending your time with me, and I'll see you on Wednesday.